Welcome to The Journey. I'm your host, Chris Demix, and this is where I pick the brains of your favorite musicians about their musical paths, from the very beginning and throughout the years, up until the present. How they got from point A to point B, from their earliest musical memories, that very first song they remember hearing, to who influenced and inspired them. The moment they knew they wanted to be a performer, what led them to their instrument of choice, embarrassing first recordings, performances, and everything in between. When they fully realized this was a pure, unadulterated passion, way more than just a fleeting hobby or something they enjoyed in passing. We go deep and get the inside scoop of how, why, and when this all began. No two stories are the same, each unique to the individuals telling them, and everyone as fascinating as the next. So join me now as we embark on another journey. Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the journey. And today's journey includes my guest, JR, who also plays in Less Than Jake on the saxophone. How's it going, buddy? I'm pretty good, Chris. Thank you for having me on your podcast, finally. No problem. It's about time, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I know that you <laughs> how you do things and, you know, Rogers, <laughs> you know, if there's a difference between me and Roger, you know, and it's top of the table, bottom of the table. So I get it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Difference is his hair stinks. Your, yours doesn't. Pretty much. Um, yeah. All right. We're, edit. We got to edit that out. Anyhow, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I had talked to Buddy, and I'm going to eventually get to everybody in the band. But, you know, having known you almost 30 years now, there's things about you as I was thinking about this that I just don't know. I told Buddy the same thing. And how I don't know some of this stuff is crazy because we've uh, certainly spent enough time in cramped quarters together. But, you know, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. And, and I just want to ask you, do you remember the first song that you wanted to hear over and over again? That song that gave you goosebumps, the hairs on the back of your neck standing up that you just had to had to hear again? Man, it was The Reflex by Duran Duran. I could get enough Seven and the Ragged Tiger. I could not get enough of that particular song. Like I loved music, you know what I mean? There was always stuff that I, you know, stood out, you know, but when you say like that song that I couldn't get enough of, it was The Reflex by Duran Duran. That was the song. And now did you have cable TV uh, in in 83 yeah. when that record came out? Okay, so oh, you yeah. had MT you had MTV. Oh yeah. Okay, cuz in Florida, you know, I didn't get MTV till like like the mid to late 80s. I had to go to like friends' houses that lived like three neighborhoods over where the cable uh, <laughs> stopped. I'll give my father a lot of credit. You know, he's not here anymore, but he was always ahead when it came to like technology and all that stuff. So we had cable pretty early on in my childhood. I would say 82, maybe 81, somewhere around there. Wow. Okay. You you would have been my envy. And uh, yeah, we, we didn't get cable. My, my grandmother's house had cable, so I had to go over there and watch MTV. So... You know, what was it about that song? Was it the song and the video? Do you remember what uh, what attracted you to it? I really loved the bass line in that song. For some reason, there's like, oh, you know, yeah. when it when it goes to that little pre-chorus part, doom, 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 doom. And then the why, I, 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 it was just such, it was hook after hook after hook. And then when it pops into that chorus, you know, like, I think there's a modulation there. I've never actually like analyzed the song to figure it out, but there's something when it pops into the reflex, it's massive, you know? So it just always 
stuck in my head. I, I don't know. It just was one of those songs. I could never stop. I couldn't stop listening to it. You know, <laughs> were you one of those kids that air guitar in front of the mirror? Nope, never, never air guitar. No, no, that wasn't your thing. Okay, no, okay, but I played piano. I didn't play guitar, so it wasn't. You okay, know, yeah. Which that that leads me into my my next thing. I was gonna gonna ask you is what was your first instrument? Was it the piano? Yeah, I I played piano. My so my mother's cousin married a man, and that man's mother was a piano teacher, and so. We all of my cousins went to this woman and we learned how to play piano from like age five. She taught everybody. And uh, I probably studied with her till I was about 13. You know, like once you got to middle school, piano wasn't cool anymore. <laughs> well, it's interesting watching you play. And, and, and for anybody out there that doesn't know, JR does any kinds of keyboards that we have on Less Than Jake Records. You're always the one, the go-to, you know, piano parts or keyboard parts that, that, that we add to the songs. And yes, we do add those some, sometimes. And it's interesting to watch. I can tell that you've been around the block on the piano, but you don't play that much. You're a little rusty. You have to really kind of sit there now and, and, and work through the parts. Was there one point where you were playing all the time? Obviously, because you seem like you know your way around the instrument. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's stranger as you get older. You don't do the things that you once did, you know. But for me, it's like it was always it became easier to play guitar in a chordal sense, you know, trying to figure out chords and stuff. I always say I play guitar like a caveman. And then if I want to <laughs> expand like harmonically what I'm doing, I move over to the piano because that's when I can add different tensions and you can do different, like, you know, you, you have a, a, a broader palette of tones that you're able to work with. So I'm not as um, fluent on the piano as I was maybe when I was in college, but I'm also, I don't play as often and there's mm -hmm. just not, there's not a keyboard readily available when we're on tour, you know? And so who the hell's going to pull out an 88 key keyboard on the, in the back <laughs> lounge of the bus instead of a, you know, you can't travel with it. That's so not going to fit in the overhead, you know? So they have the, they have those blanket keyboards. Now you can roll out and they actually, you know, if, I don't know if you've seen those or not. But, yeah. Uh, maybe I, maybe, I, maybe know, I need to get you one of those. <laughs> it's, it's weird too, because you know, like there's something to be said about playing a piano versus a keyboard because a piano, the keys are weighted and it yeah. feels different. You know, it's like anything else. It's all feel and whatever. When did you know you had a voice? You could hear pitch. Which, which um, by the way, by the way, you're, I mean, I would argue probably the, one of the best out of the three of us in the band on pitch. I mean, you really hear things and you really, you know, you, you can sing really well. Well, thank you. That's nice of you to say, finally, it's only taking you 20 years, but <laughs> yeah. um, it's on it's, record now. Yeah, Now it's on record. I got it. But you know, I don't know. I was in, I probably started singing younger than maybe it was about the same time seven six but we used to and my my mother was really active in our church and there was a, a youth choir and she would say go sing in the choir you know and so <clears throat> i did and they would give me solos and i didn't know why they would give me solos versus other people you know i just was confident in in singing because because little johnny sucked <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, like, probably, you know, like, but you were better you know, than him. And so I remember in like seventh grade, I tried out for chorus, right? And so my music teacher in seventh grade, I still speak to him. And I remember he had me sing My Country Tis of Thee. That was the song. And after I sang it, he was like, I got to tell you, that's the best 
my country tis of thee i've heard all day and he probably sat through 75 auditions that day you know and <laughs> yeah. he's like really no he's like you got the the, the tone the, the you got you got the intervals and everything he goes peter you have to keep singing or whatever and i was like well thanks and i will you know and i never i never thought of it it was just something that always kind of came naturally to me so yeah. i never really thought about it one way or the other you know what i mean it was just something that i did so uh, you know and i guess in hindsight now i should just be happy that i was able to do it because it's really hard to sing yeah. in tune in time it's very difficult you know so if you were to pick one side of the family your mom or your dad's who, who do you think most of the musical uh talent came from what side neither i don't know i I've probably the mailman the mailman maybe that's who my <laughs> my father was i I, you know, there was always music around, but like, I can't say that there was one side that was more musical than the other, maybe my mom's side, but I mean, I don't know. I'm always curious about that question when I talk to people about that, because I know where mine came from. My parents were performers. My mom and dad both sang and my mom's dad could sing really well. And and I got uncles and and aunts that can sing. So um, do you remember the first performance on TV or live that you saw where you're like, I want to do that where the light bulb went on. Yeah, there was a show on television called Kids Incorporated. remember that show okay i do and i remember these kids would get up on stage at their local soda shop or whatever the hell that place was that they performed and they perform it front of all their friends and they thought that you know their friends thought they were so cool because they would dance and sing or whatever and and i was like i want to do that you know i want to get on stage dance and sing or whatever (laughs) you know it seems so uh juvenile but truly that's what it was and then i guess years later i I saw uh, Fishbone play and I saw Angelo Moore jump off whatever he jumped off of. And I was like, I want to <laughs> do that, you know? And I mean, it's obviously that's two totally different things, but the initial spark was watching that show and going, I could do that. Right. Well, we're going to get to those, those, those later rock and, and, and punk and ska shows. But the reason I asked that was because, you know, I want to know, like, the first time you got on stage, was it like a recital playing piano, singing, or, or, you know, was there one you were in the class play where you danced or had the, Uh, had, had the lead in the play or something. Do you remember your first time on stage where you got that rush? Yeah. I mean, we played when I was in high school, there was a talent show variety show that they did every year. And I remember playing my junior year and the band, actually, if I look at it now today versus then, you know, like, the guy that was the leader of the band, the drummer, his name is Jim Obalon, and he uh, was Paul Simon's drummer. Okay. You know? And then the bass player was my friend Mike Woods, who you're familiar with. Of he course. played in Damone. And then the trumpet player in the band was my friend Anthony Rosamondo, who was the guy who wrote that song Shallow for A Star is Born for Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. Mm-hmm. You know, that was won tons of awards. And then a couple other friends of mine that we we were in you know high school together and we just played like a funk 
group that we did like in the we would play this song in the band in the the stands during football games we were in the marching band and we just decided to do like a variety show version of it we you know we all dressed up stupidly or whatever but like <laughs> it was fun you know and we played like a, a parliament song and we played this other song and then we played i can't remember what it was there was a, like maybe an aretha franklin song that we did we were like a backing band for a friend of ours that sang and i remember just getting like a real rush from being on stage in front of all these people and i was like ah, this is something i i really like you know and i think pretty shortly after that is when i joined my first band with those same pretty much that same group of people and you know you're you're most well known as as a professional uh, saxophone player when was the first time you put a sax in your mouth and tried to blow through a reed it was the just going into may of 1989 i guess sounds right maybe 88 and my music teacher was like i played clarinet because and the reason i played clarinet is when they go to rent instruments to kids they only have a certain amount of instruments that were available to rent i wanted to play saxophone so did everybody but they ran out of saxophones to rent and somebody said oh play clarinet it's pretty much the same it's not pretty much the same <laughs> but it's close but it's not and so finally i'm sitting there in a lesson my sixth grade year going to my seventh grade year so maybe this is yeah it's probably 88 and my teacher Fred goes to me, Peter, have you ever considered playing saxophone? You know, and inside, internally, I was like, oh my God, yes. Outside, I was like, yeah, I thought about it. <laughs> and he's like, well, we have a tenor saxophone here that the school owns. Why don't you go take it out? And so I try, I took it out and I played it and it just felt natural, you know? And he's like, we'll take it home for the summer. And I just wouldn't put it down that summer. I mean, but by this time, by 89, you're like 14 years old. So like you're yeah. a late bloomer to an instrument like that. I mean, a lot of, a lot of kids are starting way younger. And the fact that you were able to take it and run with it, uh, as you said, it was kind of natural to you, right? It's like being a race car driver, I guess, you know, and wanting to drive a car for so long. And then you start off as a little kid and you drive the little race tracks or whatever. And then you just kind of build up. And it was kind of the same thing with a clarinet moving into a saxophone. It's like, it trained me to know what this was, you mm -hmm. know, and it actually playing a clarinet is a little more complicated than playing a saxophone. It's the same functionality or whatever, but the fingering is all different. You know, so it actually was easier for me to play the saxophone because the fingerings are a little more, they're less complicated, I should say. So right. it was easier for me to pick it up. But, you know, it just, it takes time like anything. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Do you remember the first rock or pop concert show you saw? And how old were you? I was kind of late to that, too. I feel it was like 
early nineties, 1991. So I lived kind of, I lived in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. So for me to get anywhere, it was, you know, I either had to get a ride or have my parents drive me. And my parents weren't so hip to bring me down to the major city, which was New Haven here in Connecticut that often to go see concerts. So I was probably 17. Yeah, okay. And I, I feel your pain there because I was closer to 15 uh, because Tampa was two hours from Port Charlotte. That's even farther than Hartford. So I, yeah. I feel you there. I was kind of, I didn't really get into shows. Man, when I went to Gainesville, it just, everything exploded and uh, uh, hence why my college career didn't take off. But um, <laughs> so. Yeah. And I can't, and like I said, I can't remember who I went to see, but I know it was down in New Haven and I think it was at the tune-in okay. at the time. Well, you know? you know, that area in New England, especially for Skies, you know, is just been a hotbed and you you know you're already talking about your first band you're 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 kicking around with mike woods you're kicking around with a guy that ends up writing songs for lady gaga there's talent there and then uh your first ska band was called jc super ska which yes which for i guess lack of a better word morphed into spring heel jack well no there were two different bands right so when we first started there was two ska bands in the state of connecticut there was spring heel jack and there was jc super ska but we all knew each other really well because, again, there was only two ska bands really at the time. So we played a ton of shows together, you know. Okay. And so there was people that Chris Rhodes, who's in the Boston's, he was always in Spring Hill Jack. Right. And that's how I met him was playing shows or how I met them was playing shows back and forth. And we played with them when before you were in the band. Yes, you did. Yes, up at, in Studio 158, Willimantic, Connecticut. Old Charlie. also no longer exists. Yes, old Charlie. <laughs> I, don't, I wonder about him sometimes. But yeah, I mean, it was two different bands. And so, but, you know, like Rhodes would come and he would sit in with us and play songs. And then I would go sit in and play songs with Spring Hill Jack. And there was always like a little friendly competition between the two bands. But, you know, Jack was more ska punk i suppose and super ska was more of that traditional slackers scottalites type ska you know what i mean like maybe a little right. more swing based and so what happened there was super ska started musically it just wasn't really vibing with what i wanted to do and you know springhield i liked the music more it was more accessible to me yeah you know what i mean and uh you know, there was some things going on. And so finally I just like hit my breaking point with JC Super Scott and I said, that's it, I'm done. And pretty quickly after that, I joined uh Spring Hill Jack. You know, they were like looking for a sax player and I just happened to be available and I was like, I'm gonna move on in my life, you know. Right. And I know you know this, but for the listeners, you know, your band, Spring Hill Jack to me and to a number of people I, I remember talking to about it, you guys had the best horn section. I mean, Rhodes went on to the boss tones. He's the the sixth honor, honorary member of Less Than Jake, comes out and plays with us. You play with the boss tones, kind of interchangeable there. Then you got Tyler yeah. Jones, rest in peace, who went on to play with Real Big Fish, who was a phenomenal player. Uh, the breadth of talent in that band was was insane.
remember you guys played the 99 Warp Tour. You were out there. Less than Jake was on it. We were in Orlando. That's the first time I remember really meeting you. And it was a short, what, within a year? We were on for, I think we were on like five days or something like yeah. that. But then within a year, a year after that, I think I joined Less Than Jake. And we were looking for a sax player. And I remember I, the first guy said him, the, 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 you know, Pete, Pete, we were still calling you Pete at that time. You weren't JR yet. I said, Pete from Spring Hills, yeah. our guy, you know, again, just uh, goes to show you what, what, what talent that we remember from, from, from Spring Hill. When you were out with Spring Hill, you know, because you guys had a moment. Ska Punk was just, it was at the apex. It was kind of going crazy late 90s. You guys were on Moon Ska. You got a deal with Ignition Records, which I believe was a subsidiary of Tommy Boy or something to do with that? Correct. Yes, okay. correct. Okay. Was there a moment at that time where you're like, okay, there's something here and I, I, this might be a viable career choice? Yeah, I mean, you know, we signed everything. The trajectory was up, you know, and we signed to this fledgling label called ignition and the reason we signed to it is because they only had two other artists signed there was a group called btk and then there was another group called anthrax and guess which band that we wanted to sign with <laughs> because you know what i mean anthrax. like we're like fucking anthrax you know we used to do a cover of i'm the man that i i don't know if you have i should show you a recording of that sometime i think i have it somewhere but <clears throat> we were huge anthrax fans we're like good enough for anthrax good enough for spring hill jack yeah you know and we were given the opportunity because we had a friend of ours who was an engineer. Uh, we had this opportunity to record the record that we did for Ignition at the Hit Factory in New York City. Yes. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, like the, what was that that movie that they did? Dave Grohl did about what was is that studio out in Los Angeles? Oh, Sound City. Sound City, right? Yeah. So the Hit Factory is New York City's Sound City, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody fucking recorded there. That was, uh, you know, Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life was recorded there. Bruce Springsteen recorded Born in the USA there. Like, big, Michael Jackson recorded, like, big records. And you walk into that, you it doesn't exist anymore. That's the mm -hmm. saddest part. But when you walked into that room, you just see all these gold and platinum records, and you're, you're taken aback. I was 22 years old. You know, I was yeah. like, what is going on here? And we recorded in Studio A. And that's the place where all of the records that you ever loved from that time period, that's where it was recorded, right? And so you just feel this vibe there. You know, it was a hard thing to, to put aside. But I remember it so vividly, you know, because it was just such an incredible place to be able to record. And so we made this record and we were really happy with it and you know we went and went on tour and things were good and then things weren't so good you know but that's kind of what happens sometimes right you know? and and you know uh, i want to get into something now you know the the band i believe you got played a couple of times on 120 minutes with jolene the single yep. from mm -hmm. the record and and you guys were kind of right there and then we're not going to go into the whole story but i i, I do want to show the perseverance and how there there's ups and downs in this business i mean uh, I don't want to speak for you, but I think this is kind of the story and you can elaborate is the band kind of fizzled out late 99 and, and you kind of thought you were done with music. You were thinking about going to teach and, and do some other things. I know you were cooking at the time at a restaurant. You were kind of figuring, trying to figure out what the heck you were going to do. Um, and then the opportunity to join Less Than Jake came up. So you never know where this career is going to take you. Can, can you talk about that interim, that, that six to eight months where you, you were kind of lost? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was six to eight months. It was kind of, it, it probably felt like 10 years, but it really was probably, <laughs> it was probably two months, you know? And like the story goes, I was uh, in the last semester of, you know, Jack had come home from touring and we were writing. And so I was in my last semester of college, right? I, even though I had taken time off, I had four more months to get a degree. And it was the hardest part because I was going to school. Uh, for education. So I had to do student teaching. So it was every day getting up six o'clock and going teaching every day, you know, Monday through Friday. And then Friday nights, I would drive back to Connecticut from Boston to work on songs or play gigs or whatever. So, and then on top of that, I was also working at a restaurant, you know, cooking just to try to make some extra money, you know, so I could pay my rent, pay my bills. So I don't know if I slept from for that entire year you know maybe two <laughs> hours here and there a night i don't remember sleeping very much but i remember getting a phone call from one of the members of spring hill jack and he was just couldn't be consoled about how much time i was spending in boston and you know what my commitment was to the band and so on and so forth and i remember just saying to him at some point i was like look man can you give me two months? And then I'm done with school. I have this thing and then we're going, it's happening, you know? And I don't know, like I said, it just maybe I remember my final quote to him was, well, maybe you can find somebody to do my job better than me because I think I'm done. And then that was it in life. You can own the only person that really knows what your self-worth is, is you. So if you don't have a high idea of yourself or high thought of yourself, then why should anybody else, you know, mm -hmm. or why would anybody else think anything more of you? And I think maybe he thought he was just going to kind of like bully me into doing something that was right for him. But in my life, I've always done what I think is right for me, you know, and right. then if it happens to be right for the other people around me, then great. But, you know, at least I can go to sleep at night. And so after I quit Spring Hill Jack, I or maybe they would say I was kicked out. I don't know. You can ask, <laughs> you could probably ask them, but I'm pretty sure I quit. And, you know, I was just like, well, the hell with this. I'm going to focus on student teaching. I'm going to focus on this job. And, you know, I'm living in Boston. I'll just keep living in Boston and doing this thing, you know? And so it was, to be honest with you, man, I had, I was student teaching in Newton, Massachusetts at this high school called Newton South. And the music director there at the time he was like i was getting towards the end of my student teaching he's like look i really like you we don't have a job here but i want to create a job for you here so if oh, wow. you're interested let's oh yeah he's like so if you're interested we should talk about this more you know and so here i had this opportunity and like i was making okay money working at a restaurant you know for being 22 or 23 or whatever i was at the time you know and then i got a phone call from this guy, his name was Vinny, and he played drums in this band called <laughs> Less Than Jake. I knew who Less Than Jake was. You know, I wasn't a fan, so to speak. I knew who the band was. I was, I knew Losing Streak, and I knew Automatic, right? Those were the songs. And I knew Johnny Quest thinks we're sellouts, right? Yeah. Those were the three things that I knew about Less Than Jake. 
But I remember playing a show with you guys in New Jersey somewhere. Maybe it was Rutgers. And I was like, it was Rutgers. And I remember you guys pulling up and you're in the blue and white. And I remember you guys just, I was sitting in our van and I remember you guys literally falling out of the van. Like I, I'd never <laughs> seen anything. I was like, what is this chaos that is coming at us? Look at what they're traveling. In. How is yeah. that thing? You know what I mean? Like, I was like, what is this? And like, I was, you know, we played our set. And then I remember watching you guys and I was like, what is going on? This is total chaos. And then fast forward to Warp Tour, right? I watched you guys in Orlando because your tour manager was a friend of mine and he brought me up on stage. Yeah. And you had some sort of collaboration going on with you who or something. And I just remember yes. you guys throwing you who's off stage and you were dressed up. I'll never forget it. Like these mirror sunglasses, a curly wig, a baseball trucker hat, a button down like... You who shirt work shirt, you who shirt, right? Yeah, and some whatever, and there's just chaos on stage. I don't know who's in the band, I don't know what is going on. I just hear music and I'm watching this. It's literal chaos on stage, right? And I'm going, What is going? What is this? What is this? And so when Vinny called me, he's like, Hey, you know, we're interested in having you come try out for uh, the band. And I'm like, okay, I don't know any songs, you know? And to be honest with you, I was at a point in my life where I didn't know if I really wanted to get back into being in a band. Yeah. I knew that. Dealing with yeah. that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Like I, I had just had kind of a traumatic experience and, you know, between the first two and I was just like, do I want to keep chasing the rabbit, you know, or do I just want to like fall into something that's a little more safe, you know? Right. But, you know, you guys were getting ready to go on tour. And Vinny's like, well, I'll send you some CDs. I don't have the note anymore. I thought I did, but I, I'll never forget it. It was the first four records. And there, the note that he wrote in there was, Pete, hear the CDs, learn some tunes, Vinny. No set list. No like, <laughs> yeah, like what should <laughs> I learn? Just like throw the records in, bro. Figure it out. And I'm like, dude, you know, le learning one <laughs> record worth of material is enough, but learning four records worth of material is, you know, I, and especially stuff I don't even know what I'm dealing with. So I remember I put in Pezcore and I couldn't hear the horn parts. And no, I was like, this that, that record, how, how, how could you? Yeah. <laughs> it was and mixed I was like, poorly. I mean, you guys recorded it in a day. You know what I mean? And so that's, <laughs> yeah. But I didn't know all this stuff. I'm just like, how am I going to listen to this? Whatever. And so I then I put in Hello Rock You, right? And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I can, this I can get into. And like that became the record that I, focused on for the first whatever week that i was recording or practicing and then i you know tried losing streak and whatever and i remember the night before or two nights before i flew down to florida i called Vinny. you guys had gotten back and i was just like and he's like what's up and i go hey man i just wanted to touch base like you know i, I kind of learned the songs i'm like I, I don't know if i'm gonna do what you guys want me to do i go i, I don't know what you're you're looking for and he was just, i'll never forget never forget this he's like look man the guy that's down here now he's gone home that's it like <laughs> yeah yeah well i was gonna say we had we we had, we had one other guy that had flown in for the audition and, and it was between you and him and we knew it wasn't working out then so you were kind of like the hail mary at that point yeah and i was like and he's like you're either gonna pack for three days or two weeks because you're either gonna be here for three days or you're gonna be here for two weeks and i said all right i packed for two weeks because i knew that that I was going to be there, you know, and that's when I, that was the point that I knew that I wanted to do this. 
Well, and unbeknownst to you, at that you know kind of turmoil in your life, trying to figure out what you want to do, maybe teach this whole thing happening with us. Unbeknownst to you, you were setting yourself up for the second half of your life, for at least the second half of your musical career, because it's been uh, 21 years now that you've been in this band, which is crazy to think. And I want to ask you a couple more things before we wrap up here. It, It could be even before Less Than Jake, but what is your, if you were to pick one pinnacle moment, what is your, what's a highlight of your musical career? Something that stands out, a performance, a song you record, a song you wrote, what is it? That's a hard question because I don't, I don't live in the past. You know, I live in the now or I try to be present and I try to look forward. (sighs) That's really a hard question. I I don't, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I I don't have an answer. That's an answer. That's an answer. I mean, every time I think that there, that this is it, this is the best I've ever done. This is the best. I do something that I'm like, well, this is better. You know, I do that. I say that to buddy a lot. I'll be like, dude, this is the best song I've ever written. And then he goes, but what about the one that you said was the last best song you ever written? And I'm like, well, you're right. But that's kind of what it is. I'm glad you said that because that forward momentum with anything in life, but especially in this career, uh, this career path of, of, of choosing music. If you want to do this, it's like there are ups and downs every time you turn around. There's always detractors. People aren't going to like your song, this and that. And you just got to keep the blinders on and keep moving forward. So I think that's a great I think that's a great thing that you said to to be able to admit that. I mean, obviously, there's always highlights in the career, but I respect that you're you're looking forward. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. We've done so many cool things, Chris, you know, and you've been there standing next to me for a lot of them that. Yeah, it's just hard to pick one and go. This was the one. I mean, I don't know. I guess it was cool that time that when Rick Nielsen handed you his guitar. (laughs) <laughs> when we played with Cheap Trick, I, that was cool, and that had nothing to do with me. I was just sitting there watching it all happen. You know I what I mean? Think, so. I didn't think that for a second that'd be something. You know, you know Buddy had mentioned the Bon Jovi tour, which uh, of course is is a highlight because of just the complete insanity and ridiculousness of that whole thing. You know, and, yeah. And you're right. There has been been so many highlights, and and we've been right next to each other. Um, before we break here, if there's one piece of advice you could give to someone aspiring to be a musician or performer. Uh, what would it be? Focus on the things that you can control. Don't focus on the things that are out of your control because you'll drive yourself crazy. Like sitting around and going, well, why did they do this? Don't worry about what they are doing. Worry about what you do and focus on making what you do the best that it can be. You know, realize what your strengths are. Highlight those. Don't try to be something that you're not. That's the best advice that I could give somebody. Well, I think that's a very sound advice. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you sitting in and taking us on your journey today. Thank you. This is fun. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks With Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit For A King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. 
Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.